Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Today's episode is brought to you by... Missions Resource Network. Yes, the Missions Resource Network is an outstanding ministry. Now, they've got a ministry that, that they are following God's particular lead the last year or two, focusing on work with others to care for displaced Muslims around the Mediterranean Rim, spreading... The gospel. This ministry has cast vision and helped develop collaborative strategies among churches and missionaries for the exciting opportunities God has created in the Muslim world. Now, if you don't know who this organization is, Missions Resource Network, they help disciples make disciples worldwide. For all your questions and concerns about missions, these are the people to go to. They are long-term cross-cultural missionaries themselves who have done it before and they can help you. So if you want to learn more about them, go to mrnet.org. That's mrnet.org. All right. Now what we're going to do in this podcast today is we've got not one guest, but guess how many we have, Avery? Two. Exactly. We have Wade Hodges. Do you remember Mr. Wade? Yes. And Mr. Richard. Do you know that is Mr. Richard Beck? I think he stayed in at our house one time. I think he stayed in your room. Remember one time he was preaching? Oh, you yeah. slept upstairs. Remember him? Yes. What did you think about him? I didn't like him sleeping in my room. Really? Did he mess it up? Mm, no. No? Do you think he liked all the pink pillows? Yes. Do you know he has a pink phone case? He does? Yeah, he's going to talk about it on the podcast. Okay. All right, so... For the first, uh, I think it's about 25 minutes or so, we've got Wade Hodges. In the second part of the conversation, we've got Richard Beck. So, enjoy. All right, friends. The return of Wade Hodges. Welcome back, Wade. It's good to be back, Luke. The fact that I am back can mean only one thing. What's that? You can't find anybody else to come onto your show this week. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. It's always true. I understand. Wade. Okay. You were the first guest, in my opinion, ever on the podcast. You were probably like the very first practice podcast guest, weren't you? Multiple times, I think. Multiple times. We laid down multiple tracks, which have been burned. What would you give to hear those right now? I wouldn't give anything. I think what I would ask is how much would you pay me not to play them right now? What did those first couple practice ones sound like? Do you remember any of the back and forth or... No, I think it. I think the biggest thing was trying to find out whether you were going to be a conversational Bill Simmons type guy mm-hmm. or a more serious interviewer like somebody who would be on NPR. And obviously, hmm. you chose neither. <laughs> I feel like I transcended. <laughs> you did. You created your own genre. I transcended and I included. What Thank would you, you call the genre of your podcast? It's not... It's not sports. Is it theology? Yeah, no, yeah. it's not. Uh, is it really? It's uh, religion and spirituality, according to iTunes. That's how you have it categorized. I always hoped you'd take it in more of a pop culture direction. I, I think religion and spirituality is good, but I remember early on I wanted wanted to see more pop culture. You Let's wanna... talk about movies. Let's talk about music. You remember we we tried to do a few of the early ones that you actually published. We did one on YouTube. We did one on Twenty Four. Yeah. Tried to talk about TV shows. And I don't know if it's a subject matter or 
yeah, I don't what, but it never gained any traction. Yeah, I don't think that's. I, I mean, maybe that's the Wade Hodges podcast. What you could do a podcast called "Wading into Culture" with Wade Hodges, uh, and you, know you could. I, I wanted to do one, but I was going to call it "Walks with Wade." And my whole idea is, I'm going to hook up my phone and I'm going to walk around the block, and I'm literally going to talk as I walk. So it is actually going to be a walk with Wade. Every episode is a walk with Wade. Yeah, that's. That sounds thrilling. Yeah, I keep running out of breath. I've done a couple of practice ones, and I, I start breathing too hard. Yeah, well, that's because it's uh, it's hot. It's summertime in Texas, Dallas, where you live, pretty muggy. But you know, that's the beauty of living in Texas in August. I hate August. What? It it's a great month. It is by far my least favorite month of the year, and has always been my least favorite month. Why would it, you know? It's my birthday. My birthday's in August. You were born in August? Yeah. I have yet another reason. (laughs) Oh. August in Texas, and I know many of your listeners are not from Texas, but August in Texas is absolutely brutal. Hmm. Not just because it's hot and humid, certainly here in Dallas it is, but they start teasing us with football, but it's non-football. It's not good football. You you know football's coming, but it's a month away, Hmm. and yet every night on the news you see signs of it but it's still september before you finally get to enjoy it you don't get to see anything resembling real football in august Mm -hmm. all the best movies have come and gone summer movies i always think in march and april i'm looking forward to summer movies they come june july maybe there's one in early august but usually the best of the movies of the summer have already been released so there's nothing to look forward to yeah most people take vacations, or this has certainly been true for us, we always either take our vacation in late June or July, so you have no vacation to look forward to in August. The major holidays are still months away, so there's this not is, any real breaks in the schedule this is in gonna, August. You, you really thought this out, like this is an entire monologue about your like hatred for August, and I, I don't think that's anything that, uh, that's very newsworthy. I mean, it sounds like you yeah. just, you're a little grumpy. Well, in, in June, I think the colors of summer are bright. It's, it's summer, school's out. It's a new season. We got all kinds of fun happening. In August, I think all the colors are washed out. I look out my window right now, and this is just the dull, dingy green. You know, you know what you'll have next August to look forward to, though? What's that? My book will be almost out. Next, oh, next you? August, you'll have that to look forward to. Wait, it's like October, I think it comes out, but it'll be just around the corner. You're writing a book. <laughs> I had no idea. Speaking as the one person who's read more of my writing than anyone else in the world, the person who's actually read the, I, I don't know if you've claimed to have read my novel in its entirety. I don't know if that's factually true or not. You've read. Uh, much of my writing over the last few years, so it's nice to know that you've uh, blocked all that out. I've read all your writing. Everything you send me, I read, but I would say I've read it in the same way that I, quote, read a lot of the books that were assigned to me in graduate school. Mm. I flipped through the pages. My eyes definitely saw the words on the page. I attended every page. Mm. Well, thanks for giving such a great a, a great promotion for my, my writing. You, Thank you. You know what? I could say this about your writing because you have, you've sent me a ton of your stuff and so you've given me the freedom to say what was good and what wasn't. And I the best thing I can say about your writing is you never stopped writing. (laughs) Thank you. 
Thank you. The no, Perseverance I, I, Award. That, that is, that's what you have to do. Nobody writes well the first time they try. Nobody writes a great first draft. Yeah. And you've sent me some, some truly terrible <laughs> stuff. And yet you, you, you continue to refine it and improve it. Yeah, and, thank you. And now you've got other people who believe in you and have even said, we're, we're going to support you while you do a little bit of writing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, uh, where was I? I heard someone say, you know, I had this speech that I wrote, but um, I just threw it away. I, had a, I wrote a brand new one. And what I wanted to say is that's what every real writer does like that's just a normal writing process you write something throw it away try something else i mean sermon writing you're always rewriting that is just the the nature of a professional writer is if if you write something you're gonna throw stuff away that's just how go ahead make the joke i heard it nope not gonna do it i was even i was saying as a professional sermon writer like you yeah you do that go ahead make it yeah make it nope not not gonna do it but i i there is a difference between writing sermons and a book. You get, what, a year, months to write and refine and revise and cut and add. The thing about a sermon, though, is you get one week. Yeah. And you've got to deliver that thing every week, whether it's any good or not, and, and there is a deadline. Yeah. Where do you, How is that different? Because I am curious. You're writing sermons every week just like I am, but you're also working on a book – do you ever get the two confused or are you able to keep in your mind like, okay, this is a sermon. I got to deliver this in five days. I don't have time to, to refine every single word. Yeah. I, or, I am far more comfortable writing sermons than books because I know yeah. there's that last 10% that make like a really mediocre piece of writing become like acceptable or good yeah. uh, is yeah. something that just automatically happens when you're orally communicating a message in a sermon. That's right. I felt that way too. I'll, I'll think, I know this isn't perfect, but I'll clean it up on stage. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's, it's way easier. I think it's made sermon writing easier and n- not just because there's content that I'm developing and working on, but um, in comparison, like the two different types of writing, just uh, it, it makes me appreciate sermon writing so much more. I poke at you a lot about talking about your book, but is it a temptation to over talk it, to talk about it too much? Or at this point, do you not want to talk about it? as far as the content and what's it about. I know different writers have different approaches to that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to just talk about all of it. I mean, I've heard of other people who've um, just kind of talked their material too much, and so when the book comes out, people aren't really that connected to it because it's not new or novel. Um, so yeah, I don't want to... There'll be time for it. And the, the, the tough thing about this is, unlike a sermon, you write it, and then on Sunday you deliver it. Uh, even if you've been working on the sermon for a couple months, like the book that I'm, I'm theoretically turning in in six weeks won't be published till next October. And so it'll be on the shelf in the can for a long period of time before it really comes out. And that's a weird, that, that, that's just a weird that, thing. That's a long time to wait for feedback. Yeah. I heard Tony Kornheiser on his podcast the other day. He had been a column writer for years, three columns a week for the newspaper. He said he could never write a book where you, do all your writing and then you wait months and months and months. What he loved was the immediate feedback, yeah. write a column, publish it. You know how people feel about it the next day. I think that's what blogging is for a lot of people or used to be. Nobody blogs much anymore, I guess. But yeah. that's what I, I always loved when I used to blog that I could get feedback immediately. And in the same way, sort of like a sermon, you preach it. You'll know if it's a stinker pretty quick. Yeah. 
Well, but the book, it's out there, and you send it off, and then you wait. I, I mean, honestly, though, your like sermon writing process where you write multiple sermons at a time, which I've adapted and improved from you, um, it, it does teach you that thing of like working in advance. And so it's a, it's a microcosm of the bigger thing about book writing. But like, I think the sermon writing process that I've ripped off from you makes sermons better, but I, it, it does require you to have a little bit of delayed gratification. Right. Right. I ripped it off from somebody else anyway, so it's not really mine. Do do you have a greater appreciation working on the book? You've interviewed so many people who've written books. Do you have a greater appreciation for everything they have to go through before they finally end up on Newsworthy with mm-hmm. Newsworthy to talk about their work? Uh, I mean, I think, ask me that question in a year and a half when my book's actually out, and I'll, I'll have a better answer. I mean, I've always, re- as someone who's been trying to do this for a while, I've always had respect for it because I get up front, yeah, this is a lot of work. Um, but ask me that question again next October and I'll okay. tell you more. Well, I think your podcast is one of the few where authors are able just to come in and talk about their work. I, I'm guessing it's probably in the top three wish list of most authors when they publish a book. Get me on Newsworthy with Norsworthy. I'm yeah, sure that's I'm, what they say to their publishers. I'm sure it is. Whose podcast do you want to go on? Yeah. Who would be your first podcast to go on to talk about your new book? Oh, wow. I... L- Never thought that question. Um, I mean, everyone would. Everyone wants to go on Oprah to talk about their book. Um, I mean, everyone does that. Does she have a podcast? I don't know. I don't think she, don't think she needs one. Well, if you can't get Oprah, maybe Rob would let you come. Oh on. yeah, he was. That would be pretty nice. I would love to do more of the. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it would be a huge honor to be on Rob's podcast. But I really would maybe be more compelled to be on podcasts with someone who doesn't typically stay in the confines of religion, spirituality kind of podcast to do more like in, intersectionality kind of stuff with, um, um, I don't know. No, it would be interesting if you did an episode where you interviewed yourself about the mm. book. I think people would love that level of narcissism. They would really be like, oh, you know. Certainly wouldn't be a shock <laughs> or a surprise to them. Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what people want. Luking, Luke talking about himself. Yeah, that's... Okay, enough about me. Uh, what Have you been listening recently to the podcast? Any books that um, you've got on your list from authors that we've had on? Or any books that you actually... I thought your... The episode with Brian Zahn was really good. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if it's the way he articulates it. I don't know if the way, it's, the way he frames it, his thoughtfulness. But he captures my heart and inspires my imagination in a way that, that most writers and preachers aren't doing today. I, when I hear him, I always want to, I always would think, I want to know more about that guy or I want to read more of what that guy's yep. written. Yeah, I think he, he does. And honestly, I think this new, new book of his, I've read a handful of his stuff, uh, books that he's written, and I think this is the best one. I think, it's, I think, it's, I think you're really going to like it. Actually, I ordered it for my dad for his birthday. So that's... Is, how is it similar or different? Because I haven't read that book. I don't think it's out yet. Mm-hmm. How's it similar or different from Boyd's book? It sounds like they're sort of wrestling with the same thing, but do they have different approaches? Uh, I haven't gotten, I haven't received Boyd's like pop level version of his last book, and it's a, I don't know, two thousand words or whatever it is. It's massive. Uh, this one is like a, a pop level accessible one. Like as a preacher, this is the kind of stuff you can give to, you know, anyone at your church who really is wrestling with these big issues. Um, Whereas I think Boyd's is specifically about like, um, 
God and, and, and suffering, or excuse me, like the, the violent stuff. And that's one piece. This is a more very accessible entry into all the different questions that people seem to have. Yeah. One of the things that Zahn said on the podcast, it, he just had a little bit about the Bible uh, yeah. and how we read the Bible and, and how all that works. And I don't know about you, but I'm noticing a pattern. He talks about it in his book, from what I can tell. Rob Bell's new book is on the Bible and how to read it. Pete Enns seems to be growing in popularity, not only with his book, The Bible Tells Me So from a couple of years ago, but his podcast where he's talking about the Bible for normal mm-hmm. people. It, it seems to me there is a growing conversation about the Bible, and maybe it's just the kind of people we read, or it's pastors who are doing this for their churches. I don't know, but it it seems like I'm seeing more and more books and more and more conversation, not about God necessarily, but and not about the gospel, not about the church, and how to be a better church, or how to reach more people, but now how to read the Bible. Hmm. And that's a to me, is a, a bit of a change. I, 20 years ago, when I first started preaching, most of the books, it, whether it was the emerging church or the missional movement, it was all about how do we be a more faithful, incarnational, embodied church in our culture. And that was the big thing that everybody wanted to read and talk about. Now it seems like either we've moved on from that or it's not working or we've done the best we can, and now we've stepped back. And we're not even talking about the gospel anymore because that was a conversation for a while. What is the gospel? It's more than just Jesus forgiving your sins so you can die and go to heaven. That was a conversation. It's bigger than we thought. But now the conversation isn't about that. It's about the Bible. What is the Bible? How does it work? How does it do its work on us and in us? But then also, what do we have to bring to it so that we can be faithful readers of it? Hmm. And I'm curious, why is that happening right now? uh, That was actually the question I was going to interrupt you and ask you. But, I mean, it's obviously out there. The books are coming out. People don't put books out unless they think it's a subject matter that people want to read. Obviously, Rob's book has been on the New York Times bestseller list a couple weeks. So people are interested in this subject for a reason. Um, If I had to guess why, I feel like people are asking better questions about the Bible now. And I think, I think, uh, honestly, how you read the Bible is ultimately seen in like the big social issues that people are wrestling with. And so people realize that the way you answer question X is really based on how you understand the issue A. And I, I wonder if that's the correlation. What do you think? I mean, you're a pastor. You're dealing with people who are interested in, in this subject. I think we're more aware of other cultures and other worldviews than certainly I, my boys are more aware of that than I was growing up. I think globally, we're just all more aware of what's going on in different places around the world, but also different belief systems. And, and maybe it's a religious version of the PC conversation, but we're wanting to interact and we're hearing these stories and we see these values. And there are parts of the Bible that embarrass us mm. in ways that maybe didn't. A generation ago, I don't know, I, I kind of grew up in a church and around people who, we read the Bible, this is what happened, it's God's Word, and your feelings about what the Bible says have absolutely no impact on it whatsoever. Yep. So if you're embarrassed by something you read in the Bible, that's on you, and you need to deal with it, and deal with your feelings, not try and explain why the Bible hmm. says what it says in the way that it does. 
And I just wonder if, if maybe now we're starting to realize that's either not going to work or we're not going to set aside our feelings, but we, we're trying to understand how to read this book that makes us feel very conflicted about our mm-hmm. neighbors, about violence, about people who have a different lifestyle than we do. The Bible doesn't pull its punches, and yet we're not sure we're comfortable going where the Bible goes in, in some key topics. What do you, I think maybe that's part of it. Yeah. No, I think you're right. What do you think has caused people to be more comfortable with asking, are we sure the Bible's okay about this? Like, I think you're right. People before don't seem to have had the issues about the, the violent text in the Old Testament and the genocide and the conquest narrative, that and, kind and of I stuff. And I guess when you say people, I think there have been plenty of liberal theologians, members of mainline churches who said, no, 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 we've had this conversation 50, 60, 70 years ago, like a generation ago, 100 years ago. So maybe it's now evangelical Christians yeah. are opening up to this conversation. That's probably a more accurate way to frame this. It's wh- why yeah, are fair. evangelical types or progressive evangelicals willing to wrestle with the Bible in new ways? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. I, it seems like people love... I, I don't know what it, what do you think I mean people are very comfortable talking about like the humanity of Jesus but sometimes w- we don't have that comfortability with other things well certainly not with the Bible I I'm I'm actually jumping on the bandwagon and in September I'm going to do a series of teachings at my church about the Bible and mm-hmm. I'm pretty nervous about it in some ways because I think Max Lucado and the books he did years ago he he they were bestsellers because he was helping us to reimagine Jesus as a human being. Yes, he was God, but he was also human. He was like us. God came near. And Max made his name in some ways helping us rediscover Jesus's humanity. And it was a beautiful thing. Hmm. I'm not sure people want to discover or explore how the Bible is incarnational as well, to use Peter Enns' language, how, it, yes, it's the word of God, but it's written by humans. And I, I don't know if we're as comfortable exploring the humanity of the Bible as we are the humanity of Jesus. I think it's more unsettling to think of the humanity of the Bible. Because when you have like the divine light from heaven, it's shot down like, like Spock getting this thing on Star Trek. It just, it, it is what it says. And so you don't question, you don't ask, you don't wonder what exactly the Bible means because the answer is black and white. You just open the book, read it, and therefore that's what it means. Whereas if Jesus is human, it means, oh, he can relate to me. I don't think the humanity of Jesus in the same way disarms any of our trust or our certainty about what it means to be a Christian or what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live. The, the, the humanity of Jesus is endearing, but the humanity of the Bible is disconcerting. Because in some ways we've attached our faith more to the Bible than to Jesus. And if you start yeah. messing with the rock upon which we've built our lives— not Jesus, but the Bible, it's like mm-hmm. you are taking the very foundation out from underneath us. You know, I, I ran into someone, I was up in Denton uh, a couple of weeks ago for a wedding, and someone told me that he made his, in- my friend Bo, uh, thank you Bo Davis, my friend Bo made or asked, I think like an intern of his, to, uh, to read, Pete, or listen to a podcast I did with Pete Enns. And uh, there was this interesting conversation where he said, you know, for a couple of days, like I, I, I was lost because I realized that my faith was in the Bible, not in Jesus. 
And I think a lot of people have bought into that sort, same sort of, like, my faith is in the book. Yep. And luckily, Jesus comes along for the ride, but really, it's in the book, not in Jesus. And if the book's wrong, I don't have Jesus. Whereas if Jesus is your faith, everything else is secondary. And, and I don't think this is some small distinction. There's a well-known church, large church here in Dallas that runs ads on TV. And one of the things they talk about when they're promoting the church is that we're a church built on the Bible. And every time that ad is on TV, I have a problem with that. I think that's, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build the church on the Bible. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's a, maybe in other people's minds, it's a subtle distinction. But to me, it's a huge distinction that mm-hmm. you're building it on a book instead of a person. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and this doesn't dismiss the value of the Bible. I mean, you, my conversion happens because I, happened when I was a kid because I started reading the Bible. The Bible um, is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. The Bible is this inspired word that is a testimony of the community of faith's interaction with God and God's faithfulness to the community. But I think when we start adding words and descriptors that the Bible doesn't say about itself to the Bible, then we get stuck right we here. We turn it into kind of a magic book that can meet mm-hmm. all of our needs. And and I think part of what you said is, what is the purpose of the Bible? And and that may be some of where this conversation about the Bible is gaining some momentum, is we're clarifying the purpose of it. I don't know that the Bible was written to tell us what healthy eating looks like. It's got a lot of food laws yeah. in it, but I don't know that it's primarily about how to lower your cholesterol. Yeah. It's, so you're not going to do the uh, the Daniel diet, 40 days of... Fitness or whatever that is. Did Daniel get to eat protein? I don't okay, think there's so. my problem with the Daniel diet. Yeah, that's he obviously well, that's he obviously wasn't that. pumping iron at the same time. No, he's he's not gonna do the CrossFit no. for Jesus like you, Wade, so you, you can't but, do that. But yeah. but do we have do we need to have a, a more simple, singular expectation of what the Bible is supposed to do? Yeah. I mean it it points you to Jesus. That's yeah. that's the thing that it is it infallibly probably points you to this, and that's what the Bible's supposed to do. So are people more, do you think they have more problems with the Bible or wanting to know more about the Bible because they're reading it more? Or are they just assuming more about it without reading it? The long-standing assumption <clears throat> that I've carried is that people know less about the Bible now than they used to, and I think I got that from... I don't know, like a Bible professor just saying, my freshman Bible students know the Bible less now than they did 10, 15 years ago. Do you think people know more about the Bible now or less than they did 30 years ago, 50 years ago? I think they, I think they probably know less, but think they know more. They, make, they have these assumptions about what the Bible is really saying or what it's about, or they have just yeah. a few stories in their mind that stick out, and they think that's the big deal. Yeah. Well, it's weird because the accessibility to information and knowledge is far greater now than it ever has been. And you can you can listen to world-class scholars talking about it um, just with a few clicks of your thumb on the phone. And so you, it, it's a weird thing that you ha- there's a, no- a lot of knowledge out there, um, but maybe that's more big-picture knowledge than actual understanding what the Bible well, is. A lot of soundbite knowledge and yeah. probably fake news knowledge, too. You see one headline on Facebook about some archaeological discovery that either proves or disproves something in the Bible. And given what we're willing to believe about contemporary modern events, what we read on Facebook, 
then why wouldn't we just assume, oh, I saw this on Facebook, it must be true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, wait, I know that you got to run. You have a swanky dinner. Um, is it with that other Dallas pastor, the uh, the guy from First Baptist, Jeffries? Are you guys getting together? Robert Jeffries? No, but I would love to break bread with him. I would love mm. to get to know him. I would love to hear his heart. I would love mm. to visit with him a little bit about how to know the will of God. Hmm. Sounds like he's pretty uh, cer- certain on that, so he could probably teach I a lot of stuff. I think he's far more certain of it than I am. Maybe he could. Maybe he could help me to be that certain. Yeah, yeah, that, he must have a, a gift or something. But um, all right, well, Wade, thanks for coming back on. It's good to be we'll back with again. you. Talk to you later. All right, cheers, friends. Uh, it's time for Richard Beck. What's up, man? How are you, Richard? Good, doing well. Good to be back with you. Oh, well, uh, today you are in uh, California teaching a class out at uh, Fuller? Yep. How's that going? It's going great. Uh, teaching a class, the call to hospitality for uh, Fuller Theological's DMIN program and uh, mm. having a ball out here in Pasadena. Uh, how do you feel about like teaching in the theology department? Isn't, isn't that fascinating? Uh, yeah. I, 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 mean, I keep r- living this double life. <laughs> N.T. Wright called you a scholar, a biblical scholar, didn't he? What do you, I don't know. Let's 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 say that happened. There, like at the, uh, he did some SMU thing. Um, when was yeah. this? You sent me, you texted me like the link. So let's not act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> he was doing some SMU talk right around when his last book came out. Maybe anyway, whatever. Yeah. He referenced you. I'll call you a biblical scholar. I'm good. Yeah, with that. and I, I get it, it's it's common for people to to call me a theologian, and and I think actual formally trained theologians kind of wink wink at that but <laughs> but but no you know what i've, I've had a lot of uh, uh, theologians like an nt Wright say say complimentary things about the stuff i'm trying to do connecting psychology and theology so it's it's affirming when you're not formally trained so i'm a lay theologian i like to call myself uh yeah well i have heard nt Wright say that your book was good you're uh uh, reviving old scratch. I've heard him say that with my own ears. So I, I, it happened. I, yeah. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. So you're out there. Um, do you make them read uh, unclean? Like, is that in the syllabus? Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, we have a they have a long. It's a it's a D main class, so they have a long reading list, and so unclean was you know a part of that list. But I'm, I'm making them read you know the, lots of other good things. Uh, do you feel kind of shady making them like buy your book for your class? Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> but, I would have no problem with that yeah. at all. Like if I ever teach a class of like, you have to buy every book I've ever written. That's just would be part of my requirement. So good for you to feel bad about that. Yeah, I feel a little bit bad about that. But I think, if, you know, I, if there was another book that I thought got at the same things, I do think unclean fills a niche in, in bringing social psychology into the conversation about hospitality that I haven't seen other books really do. So, so if there was another book that kind of did that same work, I probably would have defaulted to that. Just I could have made unclean an optional reading, but, um, but there isn't anything that gets into kind of the very instantaneous, quick, emotional reactions we have to, to different kinds of people that make hospitality really hard for people for churches and for people. And so um, that's kind of what we're, we're working on out here is how the social psychology interferes with welcome and radical hospitality. And then 
if, if you have these emotional reactions toward outgroup members, what kind of spiritual formation practices do you need to be using in your church or with yourself to become more open um, yeah. to others? It's good stuff. You're, I mean, so you're, you're talking about some of your favorite subject matter, hospitality. I mean, that's like Richard Beck 101. And uh, last night you were on Skid Row, and tomorrow, can you tell people where you're going to be? Well, yesterday we were down on Skid Row serving at the Union Rescue Mission, which was a really great experience. That mission has been down there for um, 125 years, down in L.A. And, and so just to step into a ministry that has been around for over 100 years, still doing what they're doing, uh, was really remarkable. And Skid Row is, uh, I don't know if people know this, but Skid Row has the highest concentration of homeless people uh, in the nation. And the streets are yeah. just lined. It's almost like a tent city. Just the, the streets are lined with tents. And so it's just sobering um, to, to be down there. Uh, but it was a great blessing to be with the class. Uh, we took a tour, uh, served a lunch to the, not only the residents of the mission, but, but the last lunch that they have is open to the, to the people out on the street. And so we served about 400 people who came in for that meal. Um, today we went to homeboy industries. A lot of your listeners probably know father Gregory Boyle's tattoos on the heart yeah. and had a wonderful tour. One of the young men, Omar, uh, took us around and, uh, told us his story, and it's fascinating because his story was he had been shot in the head, and so he had some paralysis on his side of his face, his right and his left arm, and as a gang shooting, and he talked about how he couldn't work at Homeboy. It took him three or four different times to make it stick, and the main reason was is he kept seeing members of the gang that shot him, and he just would get so angry he, he just couldn't forgive him work alongside him so it was just oh, wow. a really poignant reminder that homeboy industry isn't just a gang employment you know they just don't have the bakery and the silk screening that they really are involved in reconciliation amongst enemies there where these rival gang members who have a lot of blood you know in play family members yeah. themselves that they really do a work of peacemaking and reconciliation. So that was a sobering experience today. And then um, tomorrow, one of the members of our class, she's the director of the Demon program here, Julia Speck. She does a ministry to sex workers walking the streets in L.A. And so I'm going to go down with Julia and her team, and we're going to be uh, reaching out to some of the sex workers in L.A. tomorrow night. So just, you know, a normal day. In a just a normal, normal day. day normal Friday. Yeah. Richard with some uh, prostitutes and the. <laughs> I called my wife. I told her she knows what I'm doing. So okay, just yeah, make sure yeah. you figure that. Yeah. I just don't want her to find out on the podcast because well, I know she listens. And I asked Julie about that. I said, you know, do men do this ministry with you? And she said they they do. And she said, in fact, some of the most healing encounters down there are when some of these women um, interact with men on her team uh, because she said. It's one of the few interactions that they've ever had with a man that's um, not threatening, like from a pimp or or somebody trying to solicit them. Like yeah. that, there's something deeply humanizing about just 
being able to stand there with a the man in a normal, healthy kind of way, it's such a rare experience for them. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I, I pray God's blessing on what happens uh, tomorrow night and blessings on Julia for doing the ministry. Okay, so you said before how, uh, like, being on the beach when you're, uh, like, at Pepperdine, going to the beach in Malibu, like, you don't care about that. That's not interesting to you. That's not your place. But going to places like this seems to really give you life. First of all, have you always had that sort of bent and interest for these sort of spaces? No. no. I I think it was after, actually, the publishing of Unclean. You know, so I, I wrote Unclean, and, and I didn't actually have, if you read the book, it's all kind of an academic approach. Like, I'm not telling any stories mm-hmm. or narratives. But as the more and more I went around talking to churches and giving classes in, in the lessons of Unclean, people would ask me, well, what about your life? How have you experienced this? And I just realized that there was just big, kind of a big gap in my life. And so it was those kinds of promptings from audiences that led me out to the prison and out to Freedom Fellowship where we worship alongside kind of a marginalized community that, and then when I found life out in those communities, then, yeah, then that just got me hooked. And so I I really just feel alive when I'm on on the margins of society. I don't don't know what it is about it. I just love it. Well, how would you describe like the feeling? If you can't describe how you find life there, what is it that you feel while you're there? What is the... You say, I, I find life, I feel life. Like, describe what that is. Well, it, it's different things. Like, so, for example, at the mission yesterday, you know, so if you, everybody's always done this. Like, like you've probably done it from youth groups. You go to a, you know, mission church, and there's a, a meal that's served, and so you get in line. And so, like, yeah. for a large part of what I was doing yesterday was um, the lady there running, the you know, the mission, uh, older lady who'd been there for years, and had seen volunteers come and go and she's just kind of bossing me around about getting the cheese put on these hamburgers and six onion rings <laughs> put on the plate, you know? So there I am, you know, putting six onion rings on the plate and trying to do my job in the, in the line. And, uh, and I, I, I was talking to my wife about this, about why I love doing stuff like that is because, um, I feel like I'm being of service, but I'm also stepping out of kind of the world of social comparison and signaling. Like nobody knows they're like that he's, he has a doctorate degree, you know, nobody knows that I've written five books. Like nobody cares. Like I'm the guy I'm just working. I'm just taking orders. (laughs) And there's something I find it very healing to my ego to step in these spaces and just be a human being. Maybe that's what I guess what it is. It's this feeling of like Yeah, just being a human. My my I recover my humanity and and I I, I achieve a degree of self-forgetfulness in those contexts. And I mm-hmm. become very other other oriented. I get out of my head. Hmm. And as an academic and as somebody who speaks in front of lots of people and I I, I think I'm just too self-absorbed, and so I lose that self-absorption in those locations. Hmm. I can just be Richard Beck in it's in in the way I think God wanted me to be, not not the Richard Beck of the self-presentation that you get caught up in. Yeah. Not not the brand Richard Beck. That's maybe that's the way to say it. It's not the brand. I get out of the yeah. brand, and I'm just a guy putting onion rings on a plate to just. 
help these people out. I I can completely get that. Like the, it's easy to be in the brand, and obviously not everyone. Like you're not talking about, hey, I've got an Instagram following a million people, and you know my my last name's you know sells movies or something like that. But when you do function on the stage, and whether the stage is your blog, the classroom, or you know, literally on a stage, you start to believe that that's who you are, and that's not who you yeah. are. And this is yeah that that remind you that's not who you and are. i think even yeah. and it's not even you know it's everybody everybody has a you know carl oh, carl okay. Jung talks about the persona and the shadow side you know and the persona mm-hmm. is the the mask we show to the world i think we are all in some degree branding ourselves and and hmm. and to be able to kind of let that go and just uh relax into your humanity. I, I don't know. I just, it just feels good. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I can see that. It's not just stage people who have a stage presence. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone's putting that out there. Everyone's putting their false stuff out there to. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So you're, uh, you're in LA and, or Southern California. And I saw on your blog recently that you uh, were listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, promoting it. Thanks again for promoting the competition. Um, <laughs> but he had a podcast, which if you like mediocre podcasts, I'm sure millions of people download every episode. Um, <laughs> but he had a podcast about uh, A Good Walk Ruined, the one about, uh, what is it, the Beverly Hills Country Club or a golf, golf course out yeah, there? Yeah, all these different... L.A. doesn't have a lot of parks or green spaces, but there's all these big golf courses in the city, but they're all private elite clubs. Yeah. It, first of all, fascinating podcast. And uh, on your blog, you made a connection to some of your work. Uh, that's my dog just tried to break into the pot. Oh, you remember my dog? Remember when you were here? Oh, I Doing do remember the- your dog. Your dog almost killed Stephen Backhouse, from what I understand. The Kierkegaard scholar <laughs> yeah. almost died. Yeah, he was trying to take a leap of faith into <laughs> Stephen's arm. Uh, he, he he just jumped in the in the room right now. I'm I'm obviously recording this one at home. Um, special occasion for Richard back. Uh, l- let's go back to the uh, the Gladwell podcast. The um, yeah, so the, the interesting discussion about how wealth is maintained uh, through the ownership of the club. You made an interesting connection about that on your blog. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know. So my recent book, Reviving Old Scratch. And, and other people like Walter Wink and William Stringfellow, even C.S. Lewis and N.T. Wright himself, um, have tried to describe what the Bible means by the principalities and powers and mm-hmm. why our battle is against the powers and the principalities and powers. And so we often try to describe them as these suprahuman forces that uh, persist over time. And, and, they're, and because of that, they're just really durable and they're really resistant to change. And so Gladwell and his the, – the reason why Gladwell was kind of ranting against these golf clubs was is, is that there's a – because of the tax laws in California. Um, property tax. They can't yeah. – if they sell the ownership. I think it's Prop they, 13. Is it Prop 13 or Prop 8? It, but it's a – there, there's a proposition out here that kind of locked in pre-1978 taxes – and it was connected like Bob Hope or something who Yeah. Right. Right. And and so the idea is if you own this property before nineteen seventy-eight, those tax rates, property tax rates get locked in. But if ownership changes, 
then it changes to current tax rates. And if these golf clubs paid property taxes on the acreage that they are involved in, it would be millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But the ownership of these clubs is, you know, it's a club. It's, it's owned by all of the people. It's owned by all of the members. And his point was is that over the generations, the membership of this club has changed. But the court ruled that even though the membership is constantly changing, like molecules out of a storm cloud, mm-hmm. the, the ownership has never officially changed. And so they dodge the tax penalty. So the ownership is changed, even though all the owners are different now over time because they have new members. And so it was, I, I was comparing it to this metaphor how the power structure, in this case, the ownership of a, power, of, of a club, remains, persists over time. While the individual human beings that participate in that structure uh, come and they go, like many of us come and go in the institutions, so America or your company, uh, those pre predate us. We participate in them, keep them going. We die, and it keeps going on. And so, it's a good illustration of how the powers of the world, from any institutional organizational structure, has this kind of durable identity over time and they can participate in in injustices because of that yeah yeah okay so let's change it to a different sport um have you been keeping up with the colin kaepernick stuff with the nfl how he's he's still he's still not getting signed um yeah most i think have, there, there isn't there some suspicion that the owners are blackballing him because of that yeah they're like statistically he was you know, an above average quarterback or, uh, an, excuse me, he's above the average backup quarterback's performance based on a statistics from last year. Some have argued in 2013 when he took his team to the Super Bowl, he was actually statistically worse than he was last year. Anyway, so the Baltimore Ravens, their starting quarterback, Joe Flacco, got hurt, long-term injury, and the coaches seem to have wanted him. The players out, uh, across the board, the players obviously want a good quarterback on their team. They've been outspoken about him. The ownership actually floated the idea of bringing him back on to fans to gauge, I think, their response, or more specifically, sponsors' response. And then they end up choosing uh, a quarterback who statistically was a subpar player. Yeah. And, and you're going, well... And so I don't know if you remember uh, a year or two before, there's a guy named Riley Cooper who played for the Eagles at the time, went to college, University of Florida. And he was a, a mediocre receiver. I think one year he had 10 touchdowns, but that was uh, definitely an anomaly, not with his consistent statistical performance. But in the offseason one year, like second to last year of his contract, he is caught on a cell phone camera at a concert, Kenny Chesney, some country concert in Philadelphia, saying that he's going to beat up every N-word in the place. Caught on camera, obviously mm. goes viral, this guy making a... Re- and guess what? He was out of football for a year, but he just got signed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And so the question is, you can say a racial slur and get back in the league, but if you make a stand for racial injustice, you're down. Yeah. You know, it is so... I almost despair at how to communicate with some audiences about the issue of race. You know, that the obvious injustice is in play and in this situation, um, 
I, I don't know. I, I just struggle with it because I, I guess I'm putting mind to this because have you seen the movie Detroit? Have you gotten a chance to see it? No, I haven't seen it. It is, yet. it is heartbreaking. It is a hard movie. And what makes it doubly hard is you watch the movie of, of something happened in the sixties and you're like, that like, that's, that's today. You know, that is what 40 years ago and nothing has changed. It, it, so it goes back to, that Gladwell podcast, that the structures, it's different people, you know, different police, different police officers, different NFL owners, different, different NFL players, different, you know, different people working in any job. It's, it's different people, but the structures have not changed at all for a generation or two or, and, and well back. And so that is the hard piece to grab a hold of because you can yell at individual people. But it's like yelling at a molecule in a thunderstorm. Yeah, you know, you call, and you and, call that molecule racist. Well, maybe, maybe it is. It's a racist molecule, but, uh, but it's the pattern in the structures that sweep those molecules up and, and persist over time. Because that molecule is going to live and die. Like, so you watch the movie Detroit, you go that racist cop, um, but. You know, he lived and he died, but we're still dealing with those yeah. same injustices. And so that, I think that's what the Bible's talking about when it's saying your battle's not against the yep. molecules. It's against the, the thunderstorm, the principalities and powers. And, and that was one of my favorite things about uh, reviving old scratch is that it doesn't let you demonize people. And it, it puts the issue as we are complicit, we are part of the issue, but the issue isn't just people, it's not just flesh and blood, and it doesn't let you scapegoat other people, and it points to something bigger. Even if it continues to go on today, um, <clears throat> there is uh, the movie Confederate, which, or excuse me, the uh, the series Confederate, I think HBO just picked it up, I'm assuming you've heard yes, of it. Yes, uh-huh, in the controversy. Okay, yeah, so the alternate history of what if, you know, South won. I, and it, it's interesting to me, I, I hear that and I go, oh, that's a... Uh, that's an interesting idea. I mean, it's like um, the movie Man in the High Tower, Alternate History. Um, Nazis win that one. What does the world look like there? It's, it's the same storyline. Uh, I don't think anything of it. And then I have some friends of mine, um, you know, people of color who are going, yeah, but you can't talk about that because it's still going on today. Like, there's still, like, the principality of racism and, and prejudice, it's not done. Like, that war never really was won as much as we think it is because it still goes on. That's why it's so infuriating that the people might have changed, but, or the, the, the particles, I'm not really great with the science metaphor here, but the storm is still existent. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, no, no, I was gonna. I'm, I'm gonna transition subject here, mm-hmm. unless you want to stay here for another minute. Can I change transition yep. a little bit? Okay, so I was reading on your blog that um, you dusted off those old those old Numa videos on the bottom of your bookshelf, and you took them out to the uh, the prisons recently. Yeah, we did. We've a uh, yeah. I thought I'd try to get some clicks on my blog by entitling it "Rob Bell in Prison," but that's it. I mean, that was a, a great line. Yeah. I thought about I thought about emailing him that because I thought you know he needs to see this. But <laughs> I did I did I that did. I, uh, a couple years ago. I did that with Ann Voskamp. I, I wrote a post called Ann Voskamp in Prison" just to see if anybody <laughs> would say, "Why is Ann Voskamp locked up again?" You know, like what, what's the? Uh, You're trying to get on TMZ. Yeah, yeah. good for you. And so, hey, uh, I, go ahead. Uh, s- side note: I had um, 
I had Sonia Richards Ross, who's a four-time Olympic gold medal medalist on my podcast, just at the beginning of her book tour. And in her book, she talks about um, uh, an abortion that happens right before the Olympics in Beijing. And it was the first news bit that came out about her book. And so it was breaking news that she had an abortion no one found out. And so it, long story short, they, they played part of my podcast on TMZ. And uh, that was my first time getting on uh, TMZ. Thanks a lot to the uh, salacious title or the salacious content. Yeah. So I probably shouldn't have done that to Ann Boskamp or Rob Bell, but I'm just saying if you throw the word abortion in there, that's how it works. I'm from my experience. I'm not saying people should get abortions. I'm just saying that's how I got on TMZ. So let that be a lesson <laughs> to you, kids. Yeah. Okay. So you take Rob to uh, you take Rob to prison. And one of the things that you said in your blog is that you're trying to uh, give other images of atonement, doing some Christus Victor stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I've written about this on my blog before, and it, and it just seems like, and again, this is very contextual. And, and readers of my blog have, 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 when I've made this point, have said, hey, but what about this prison ministry and what about this prison ministry? But, but my experiences have been that prison ministries tend to be um, kind of pretty fundamentalist and dogmatic and in, mm-hmm. in their in their theology, and so I, I kind of come from Christianity from a more of that progressive Christian side, and so these in, these inmates have, have kind of been really well trained in ways to think about theology and atonement, and so I've struggled to insert different perspectives. Now, I'm not you don't do print as prison ministry to indoctrinate. You're not supposed to indoctrinate, but <laughs> yeah. um, but I just wanted a more diverse. Uh, experience because I think uh, these other these other atonement theories actually do bring important perspectives into the the lives of these inmates and so they definitely do deal with guilt and so I understand that penal substitutionary atonement makes yeah. sense out there but but when I start talking to them about sin being a power. You know how Paul in, in Romans, yeah. sin is like capitalized. Sin is like this power. He says, so don't be a slave to sin. And, and if you look at these guys in the prison and say, do you feel the power of sin out here? A power that sin isn't a mistake you make. It's not a moral performance error. It is this, it's, it's, it's in the air. It's, it's, the, it's the dark satanic force that kind of, surrounds you that you constantly swim in and it's do you feel that and they start nodding significantly yeah. they're like yeah i mean that it's not just about guilt it's about slavery and, and that just creates a great entrance into talking about christus victor atonement how god's the good news is god is liberating and emancipating you and freeing you from that from that bondage and yeah. that's just not a message they they hear a lot. They hear a lot about that they're forgiven, but their experience is still one of bondage. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I've, I accepted Jesus into my life, so I know I'm forgiven. But they still struggle daily with a sense of captivity, spiritual captivity. And um, I think Christus Victor Tome and other progressive perspectives have a lot to offer. Um, helping them think through the yeah. predicament. So, okay, your next book comes out October, November, November like the first. 
Okay, what's the title of it? Stranger God Meeting Jesus in Disguise. Okay, and it's going to talk about some of your experience in the prison ministries, right? Yeah, it's it's basically what I'm talking about out here at Fuller. So this is my this is basically unclean uh, for a popular audience. Unclean's a pretty heavy book, yeah. um, and it, mm-hmm. and it's not very practical. Unclean is more diagnostic about why hospitality is hard. So after spending years talking about unclean and equipping churches and hospitality ministries. I've always wanted to have a book that, it, that a, a church could just hand anybody in the pew and say, Here, here's, here's the book. And yeah. Stranger God is that book. It's the book. It's written very much like Reviving Old Scratch, lots of anecdotes, very practical about welcoming Jesus in, in the, you know, the people that I've been talking about, the marginalized and um, the oppressed and the stranger and finding Jesus in those places. Well, uh, I thought Reviving Old Scratch was great. I thought it was uh, just really good. So if this one continues uh, that sort of very accessible um, pop-level stuff, I think, yeah, people are going to be... Um, like, I think people loved Unclean, but it was just a different level of uh, accessibility than Reviving Old Scratch. So this is going to be that same format, which I think will be yeah. great. And my, my real hard-hitting question about the book, <laughs> is that your face on the cover of the book? <laughs> Is that you? Because there's a rumor that it is. Uh, I was a little worried about that. And so in the book, which you, uh, there's, a, there's a note about the cover. <laughs> and so I will leave that for readers to go read the book. But, but there is <laughs> oh. a, so, the, so who's on the cover <laughs> is explained, but only on November 1st when you read the book. There is a, oh, goodness. But right, before, right at the end of the book, the book ends. And then and there's, there's a, a note, note about, about the cover. And then, there, wow. and then, Don't, then there's the acknowledgments. But yeah, it kind of does well, look like me. So that's going to be what's funny. It's, you know, it serves me right. Because if you've seen the, you've seen the cover of Unclean, have you seen the cover? Do you remember I, it's like two feet, dirty feet? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Every, that's the question I always get about Unclean. Are those your feet? Hmm. Well, Tony Jones has trained you well to promote and market your book. So uh, kudos to you, Tony. Tony, uh, I was on the phone with him a week or two ago, and he said, you need to have Richard back on. And uh, little did I know that in that time, he would have coached you up on how to promote and uh, give a hook for uh, potential buyers to go out and get that book. But uh, we will do a proper podcast about the book when it comes out. Okay. I've got uh, kids that's way past their bedtime, and they've been coming in trying to get me to come talk to them. So um, I'm going to stop ignoring them, and I'm going to ignore you now, and I'm going to go. But Richard, have fun with the prostitutes tomorrow. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm coming home soon, sweetie, you know, Jana, just, just so you know where I'll be. Uh, okay, that, I'm glad that you clarified that coming home, sweetie, was not to me. It no. was to... Jenna. Well, uh, Oliver over here misses you. He wanted to come into the room and uh, be a part of this conversation because he had such a great connection to you last time. (laughs) Hey, you go do your dad thing. All right, man. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.